This morning, uh, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. I chose this text about five or six weeks ago when we were setting the preaching schedule uh, for the summer. And that was actually scheduled uh, to preach on Memorial Day weekend. But in the providence of God, schedules changed. And this is our text for this morning. And I never dreamed uh, that it would be so applicable to what is going on in our world today. Over the past few weeks, I have felt what perhaps many of you have felt. I've been angry, outraged at what I am seeing. I've been cynical, thinking that I know better than everyone else, that my view is, of course, the right view, seeing through everything. I've been filled with self-righteous pride thinking that I'm better than everybody else. I've been fearful. What's going on in our world? I've noticed a tendency to avoid. I just want to stick my head in the sand and hope that it's going to be over someday soon. I've noticed that I want to read news articles that confirm my bias that tell me what I want to hear. And whenever my view is challenged, I'm always very quick to say, but what about? Um, I don't like it when my views are challenged. I felt unqualified and inept to preach a sermon like this, and I'll go ahead and spoil the ending. I don't have any new great solution for the problems that we face as a country, and for the most part, I, I don't know what to say at many points. I've spent a lot of time this week examining my own sin, my own complicity and contributing to the problem of racism and systemic injustice that we face as a country. And I'm still working out, still figuring out what role I need to play in the solution. But I do want to be open. I do want to be open to listening and learning, to being willing to drop my defensiveness and my fear. I want to lament to weep with those who weep, to speak out against injustice and to speak up for those who are silenced. And I've got a lot of work to do in this area. I'm going to preach on a text in which there feels uh, an incredible gap between what I will say and how I am living. And I must admit that the whole topic uh, makes me anxious and fearful because I want to be liked and approved. I'm finding out that I would have been a very terrible Old Testament prophet. Uh, Messages uh, that uh, meet with disapproval, uh, I just don't like that uh, very much. But as I read the scriptures, I read over and over again of God's holy bias towards the oppressed, towards the victimized, and towards the marginalized. And I also see his holy and his righteous anger towards those who ignore the plight of the oppressed. So I don't think that it would be pleasing to the Lord for us to ignore what's going on in the world around us. And so I hope that by God's grace, that what this text says will speak to us today, that though it's familiar to us, we've heard it before, many of us, that it would still be fresh and profitable for us. And so let's read the text, uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we consider this text. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, that you would illumine this word to us, awaken us that we might have ears to hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This summer, we are in a series on the parables of Jesus. And the parables can come across as pretty simple stories to us, pretty flat. But when you begin to consider the parables, uh, oftentimes you are left more confused than when you began. There's a sense in which the parables are one big inside joke. And the butt of the joke, the punchline of the joke, is always the self-righteous religious types. The parables are always reversing what we think God is like. You know, if you read the parables and you come out smelling like a rose, the joke is on you. You've missed what Jesus is trying to tell us. The parables are are subversive. We think that the kingdom of God looks one way, but Jesus is telling us that it's a completely different thing, that God doesn't operate in the way that we would operate if we ran the universe. Just consider the parables that we've already looked at in the series. The kingdom of God is like a tiny seed. It's not grand and majestic, but it's small, and it doesn't look like much. The kingdom of God is like selling everything that you have to get something that doesn't look very valuable. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Or last week, The kingdom of God is a place of radical forgiveness, that we forgive at our own cost. The heroes of the parables, the heroes are not the powerful. The heroes of the parables are the lost and the least and the helpless and the weak, and this is what life in the kingdom is like. Jesus has no problems using really bad people to show us how good God is. He seems rather fond of using characters with questionable morals and questionable reputations to show us how merciful He is. He uses people like an unjust judge and an unjust manager, and as we'll see this morning, a hated Samaritan. 
to show us just how loving and good He is. And so I want to consider this passage in three parts. Look at three things. There's a lot to say. We're going to have to be more brief at points than I would like. But three things. We're going to look at the lawyer. We're going to look at the parable. And then finally we will look at Jesus. So first the lawyer. Luke tells us that a lawyer came to put Jesus to the test. And we know that he's not an honest seeker. He is not one who was looking uh, to know Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus until he's coming to tug on Superman's cape. And he's going to find that in his effort to trap Jesus, that his whole world is going to be unraveled. We also know that he is trying to justify himself. Luke tells us this in the passage, that he's trying to prove by his own moral effort that he can make himself right with God. But this man is not a lawyer as we would understand lawyer. This is not Alexander Shannara going to Jesus. This is, this is an expert in religious law. This is a seminary professor. This is a PhD in biblical law going to Jesus. And he comes and he asks a question that seems pretty common in the New Testament. That when people go to Jesus, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same question that the rich young ruler had when he came to Jesus. Jesus, what's the checklist for heaven? What are are the spiritual merit badges that I need to earn in order to punch my ticket to heaven? And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, responds to a question with a question. He says, well, since you are the expert, since you're the lawyer, you tell me. How do you read it? What does God require? And the lawyer gives a perfect and succinct answer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The the lawyer, he took the entirety of God's law and he reduced it to two things. Love God and love your neighbor. This is the same answer that Jesus gives in Matthew 22 when the Pharisees ask him, "What what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus tells them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus responds to the lawyer's answer, and he says, perfect. Perfect answer. Great job. That's the perfect summary of what God requires of you. Now go do this, and you will live. And this is an honest offer from Jesus. I don't think that Jesus is being ironic or facetious or cute in the situation. This is a straight-up offer. Do this, and you will live. Do you want to know how to inherit eternal life? Keep the law of God. Love God and love people. Live your life in such a perfectly sinless way, in a morally straight way, that you don't need a Savior, that you have no need of redemption. But I must be honest with you, if that is your view of the world, if, that's, if that is your view of how God works, that through your moral strength and obedience and performance, that you will inherit eternal life, if this is your view of life, I'm sorry to say we don't have anything for you at this church. That I've got nothing to offer that might help you. But I do want to tell you this. That if you ever find yourself in a place in which you're ready to give up, which you've tried and tried and tried, and you find yourself in a place in which you are ready to surrender, to throw in the towel, then I've got really, really good news for you. I've got the best news in the entire world to share with you. But the lawyer's not yet there. 
He's not ready to give up. And so he still wants to justify himself. And so he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? What's implicit in this is that the, the lawyer thinks that he's doing okay on the first part. To love God. But he wants to know, what does it mean for me to love my neighbor? He's asking what maybe some of you uh, asked on the first day of class. What can I do to get a C? What, what's the minimum amount of effort that I can put forth in order to pass and go on to the next class? How can I redefine and reshape my understanding of what the law of God is? Reshape my understanding of who my neighbor is so that I can make it doable. How can I make my neighbor just people that I really like and that like me? And so it's important that we remember that this is the context that Jesus gives us this parable. On the one hand, we have a lawyer trying to save himself, trying to prove to Jesus that he's enough. And then on the other hand, we have Jesus who is trying to show us and showing him the impossibility of keeping the law of God. And so it is in that context, in that context, that we get this parable. So secondly, let's look at the parable. There was a man, Jesus says there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about 17 to 18 miles. This is a real-life scenario. Uh, and to go from Jerusalem to Jericho meant to go down in elevation about 3,500 or 4,000 feet. So it's downhill. And it's a, a treacherous path. It was known that if you walk from Jerusalem to Jericho, that you might be robbed, as this man was. And so uh, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left him half dead. He was helpless and hopeless on the side of the road. He is completely vulnerable. He's naked, bleeding to death, and has nothing that he can do to improve his situation in life. And by chance, a pastor walks by pastor walks by, and he thinks, this is, what, what great providence of God. This man is paid to help me. Surely he is going to come by. And like all of you, he exclaims, thank God the pastor is here when the pastor shows up, right? But the pastor sees this man in distress and thinks, well, it might be too, too rough to get involved there. I'll pass by on the other side of the street. Let's not get too close. Then next, a Levite comes. There's not a lot of difference between a priest and a Levite, but to think about it in our context, maybe think about this as the assistant pastor or the church deacon comes by. And perhaps the assistant pastor has an even better excuse. He's got a religious excuse. You know, if I touch a dead, this, this man might be dead by now, and if I touch a dead body, then I am ceremonially unclean for seven days, and how would the church survive without an assistant pastor for seven days? And so the Levite passes by as well. But there's a third man on the road, a Samaritan. And when we think Samaritan, our minds are filled with very pleasant thoughts. We think about being a good Samaritan, about Samaritan's purse or good Samaritan hospital. And those positive thoughts and feelings are the exact opposite of what the original hearers would have heard. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Uh, This was a group that split off from Judaism a while back. They were Uh, mixed racially. They were uh, part Jewish and part Gentile, but they were fully hated by both Jew and Gentile alike. And so people would walk for miles, extra miles, in order to not have to walk through Samaria. In John 8, when a group of Jewish people were trying to think, what's the meanest thing? What's, What's the most vile thing that we could hurl at Jesus? What's the worst thing we could call him? They call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. 
It was the lowest of the low that they could call him. And you can imagine the gasp of the lawyer when the Samaritan was the one uh, that uh, came and bandaged this man, who took care of this man, who noticed the suffering, who had compassion on this man and helped him, who was not put off by the blood and the gore, but went towards him in his pain. He was the one who bound his wounds, who put healing ointment on him, who put him on his donkey and carried him to the inn and said, it's all on me. I will pay for everything and I'm coming back and whatever is owed. I will pay it. And then Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, who proved to be a neighbor to this man? And the lawyer can't even utter the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. And so what does this parable tell us? What does this parable teach us about what it means for us to love our neighbor? It means that our neighbors include those who are not like us. Our neighbors include those of different races, and those of different classes, and we cannot confine our neighbor to who is convenient for us. To show neighbor love is always costly. It is inconvenient. It might take us away from doing things that are seemingly religious or spiritual. Think about the Samaritan's day. This was inconvenient. Whatever he had planned for that day was gone. The schedule was shot. And we see that loving our neighbor might put us in danger. There's a real sense that the Samaritan put his neck on the line to save this man. The robbers could have been nearby. He was putting himself in harm's way. He could have been a victim too. Loving our neighbor opens us up to being misunderstood, to being ridiculed. What would it have been like for the Samaritan to go home? We think that it was just the Jews who hated the Samaritans, but the Samaritans hated them right back. Imagine the Samaritan walking in his house and his wife says, Honey, how was your day? You did what? You, you took care of that man? You're using our money to take care of him? What will the neighbors say when they find out about this? What will your boss say when he finds out that you were taking care of a Jewish man? What are they going to say about us on social media? Neighbor love opens us up to ridicule and misunderstanding and hatred and scorn. But it is what God requires of those who follow him. Jesus is redefining our neighbor from what is convenient to whomever is in our path. To restrict the definition of neighbor is to miss what Jesus is trying to tell us. The question is not, who is my neighbor? But it's the question that Jesus asked to the lawyer. Who was the one who proved to be a neighbor? To whom can I show neighborly love? What would it mean for us to show neighborly love? To show sacrificial, self-giving love to the African American community. What would it mean for us to love our neighbors who are black? Would it mean that without qualification, without equivocation, that we say that the lives of black people matter? They matter to us, and they matter to God. That every black man, woman, and child, that they are all made in the image of God. That they are precious to Him, that they are worthy 
of dignity and respect. Would neighborly love mean declaring that the unjust taking of any life is an offense to God? That the unjust killings of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and a multitude of other African Americans are wrong? And it is an offense to God. Would it mean that we would seek justice for our African American brothers and sisters in the same way? with the same intensity and the same fervor that you would seek justice for yourself or that you would seek justice for another member of your family? Would it mean that we would be willing to sit and to listen and learn from the pain and the fears of someone who doesn't look like us? Of someone who has different experiences than we do? And could we listen in a way that didn't make it all about us? Could we drop our defensiveness and fear and listen? Would it mean that both personally and corporately that we would examine ourselves and we would repent of the ways that our sin and our silence and our indifference has contributed to the problem of racism in our country? I certainly think that that it means all of these things and even more. So may God help us as we seek to love our African-American neighbors, and give us wisdom in how we are to do that. But I want to turn now to our third and final point. Let's look at Jesus. If you leave today, what you go home with is, this is the day, I'm going to do it. I am going to be a better neighbor. If that's what you leave with, you fall in the same trap as the lawyer, and I mean it with respect that the joke is on you. That's how you leave. Jesus is not trying to get this man to double down on his moral achievement. He's trying to get him to give up. When you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, where do you read yourself in the story? With which character do you play? With whom do you identify? Most of the time when we read the story, we put on the part of the Good Samaritan. We read this as primarily a call for us to love our neighbor. Uh, for it summons us to good works. We are to be nice, kind citizens. There's a book that we read uh, to our kids uh, on occasion, uh, and the book's account of this parable ends with this. What did you learn in this story? Uh, the man with his donkey, talking about the Samaritan, the man with his donkey was a helper. The Lord Jesus wants you to be a helper too. When someone needs help, what will you do? Is that what we are to take away from this passage? That you can be a helper too. I can do it. But the problem is that you and I can seek to be a helper and never need Jesus. The purpose of this parable is not to make us better helpers, but to get us to see that we are helpless. It is a story of surrender. It is a story meant to show us our inability and not our abilities. Because who among us doesn't feel the guilt of not loving our neighbors as we should? We've not done it in the past, and we are not going to do all that God requires of us in the future. We are going to fail and fail again at loving our neighbors, of which we will need to repent. But guilt will not make us more gracious people. Shame cannot make us love people who are different than us. 
It is only grace that can do something. Only grace can change our hearts. You and I are not the good Samaritan. We are not the heroes of the story. The Bible is not a book about me. I am not the one who comes in to save the day every time. And so until we can stop seeing ourselves as the good Samaritan and begin to see ourselves as the one who fell among the robbers, this parable will not be good news. It will not be good news to you. It will be drudgery and toil and duty. The neighbor love that God calls us to is beyond our ability and ourselves. Jesus is trying to get the lawyer to see that he needs to be shown neighbor love before he is ever able to offer love. He is to be a recipient of mercy before he is ever able to offer it. That he overestimates his ability to keep the law of God. We are not to see ourselves as the Samaritan, but rather we are to see ourselves as the one who fell among the robbers. Do you see yourself as one who is in need of mercy and compassion and help, not one who gives mercy and compassion and help in the first place? Do you see yourself as helpless and hopeless unless someone comes to save you, that your only hope in life is that your enemy would love you? That the only hope you have in life is that you would receive mercy from someone who has no reason at all to love you. Because in Jesus, we have a true and better good Samaritan. He is the one who had no reason, no reason whatsoever to love us, who because of our sin and rebellion had every reason just to walk on by on the other side of the road. But he is one who sees us in our misery and despair, and He has compassion on us, and He comes to us. And He doesn't just risk His own life, He freely gives up His life for us. Jesus knew that if He were to come into our misery, that it would cost Him His life. And He is the one who comes and He binds up our wounds. He provides all that you and I will ever need. And He says to us that it is finished, that He has paid for everything that we will need. He is the one who set aside all security and all glory and all honor and he suffered for you and for me. And he is one who promises, promises that one day that he will return and that he will put right everything and he will make good on everything that he has promised to us. In Jesus, we have a Savior who perfectly and completely loved his neighbor. And by faith, you are given that perfect record of obedience. If you are in Christ, you are seen as though you have perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself. And you are the recipient of mercy. And when you have received that mercy, it frees you then to go and do likewise. You are free now, not bound. You are free to love as you have been loved. You are freed from the law because you are united. We are united to the one who has fulfilled all law for us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would take this word, that you would convince us again that you are much more merciful than we might think. 
So we pray that you would again remind us of your love and your faithfulness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.